Welcome to journeywithjesus.net, a weekly webzine for the global church. I'm Daniel B. Clendenin. My essay this week is called Blind Bartimaeus. It's based upon the lectionary readings for Sunday, October 25th, 2015. By my count, there are three distinct stories in the Gospels where Jesus healed a man who was blind. This is a bit of an iffy number because it's obvious that sometimes the writers told the same stories in different ways to make different points to different audiences. First, in Matthew 9, Jesus healed two blind men by touching their eyes. Then, in Mark 8 and John 9, Jesus healed a man at Bethsaida by spitting and making mud that he applied to the man's eyes. In John's version, the physical healing provokes a much longer discourse about spiritual blindness, which is an important reminder that Jesus' miracles are much more than magic tricks. And then, in a story that occurs in all three synoptic Gospels, there's the reading for this week about the healing of a blind man at Jericho in Mark chapter 10. In Matthew's telling, there are, in fact, two men. There are, are about 30 healing stories in the four Gospels, and they are always anonymous. We never learn the name of the person who was healed. Someone should check me on this, but I think that Lazarus is the only exception to this rule. The most we ever learn is something once removed, like, quote-unquote, Jairus's daughter. These people had names, of course, but we never learned them. It's strange. This anonymity is another tip-off that the writers weren't interested in mere spectacle. The miracles point beyond themselves to the more profound and mysterious identity of Jesus. He was more than a magician. So, Mark 10 for this week is a rare exception. It's one of only two out of 30 healing stories in which we learn the name of the person who was healed. In this case, Bartimaeus. And what a name. It's a name about which scholars have spilled a lot of ink, and for good reason. Mark uses some apparent wordplay that points beyond the miracle to the meaning of of Jesus. <clears throat> Bar Timaeus is a linguistic hybrid that's half Aramaic and half Greek. Mark knows that he has intentionally flummoxed his Gentile readers, and so in 1046 he employs a favorite technique that he uses eight other times in his gospel. He gives us a parenthetical explanatory translation, and I quote, that is, the son of Timaeus. But what does that mean? Literally and simply, 1046 now reads, Son of Timaeus. That is, the son of Timaeus. If Timaeus sounds vaguely familiar, you might be channeling your college introduction to philosophy class. Timaeus is the title of Plato's most famous dialogue and the name of its narrator. 
In the Timaeus and elsewhere, Plato famously contrasts seeing the mere physical world while being blind to eternal truths. And so Bartimaeus begs Jesus, Rabbi, I want to see. In his book, Philo of Alexandria in the Timaeus of Plato, the classicist David Runia argues that the Timaeus was the only Greek prose work that up to the 3rd century AD, every educated man could be presumed to have read. And so we wonder, would that include Mark? Is Mark contrasting Greek philosophy with the Jewish Jesus for his Gentile audience? It's such a tantalizing suggestion. But as the British like to say, for me, it's too clever by half. And so in my view, this interpretation is at best a definite maybe. The name Bartimaeus suggests other linguistic possibilities. In simplest terms, the name combines the Aramaic bar, son, with the Greek timaeos, honorable. So, in this reading, Bartimaeus is just a family name. In other words, he's just the son of a father named Timaeus. But more subtly and allegorically, he's, quote, the son of honor, or an honored person. And still others point to the Aramaic or Hebrew word for unclean, ber-tim, suggesting that Bartimaeus is, quote, the son of the unclean. I like to combine these ideas. Bartimaeus, a down-and-out blind man, a poor person who begs for money, might be dishonored and marginalized by Greeks. He might be unclean to ritually clean Jews. But in Mark's telling, he's a person we should honor. And there's a good reason why Mark honors this dishonored man. We read in 1048 that many people rebuked him and told him to be quiet, trying to put him in his place. But the blind Bartimaeus was insistent. Not once, but twice, he cries out, Son of David, have mercy on me. Longing for help and healing, the son of Timaeus confesses the son of David. And here we've hit the theological pay dirt. The title, Son of David, is a loaded phrase that occurs 17 times in the Gospels. It harkens back to the very first sentence of the New Testament, where in Matthew 1, 1, we read that Jesus is, quote, the Son of David, Son of Abraham. The title, Son of David, points to more than a genealogical connection. It's a shocking theological confession that makes a miraculous healing pale by comparison. Jesus is greater than Abraham. He's more than Moses or even King David. He surpasses the justly famous Plato. In fact, says Mark, Jesus, son of David, is the longed-for Jewish Messiah mentioned in 2 Samuel 7, 12 and 13. 
The story of Bartimaeus is the last healing in Mark. It's a transition story with a palpable sense of geographic movement. After the healing of Bartimaeus at Jericho, Mark pivots to the triumphal entry of Jesus into Jerusalem, and thus the beginning of his Passion Week and the fulfillment of his mission. Just before the Bartimaeus story, we read that the disciples were, quote, on their way up to Jerusalem. With the healing of Bartimaeus, Mark writes, they came to Jericho. And then after his healing, we read how Bartimaeus, quote, followed Jesus along the road as they approached Jerusalem and came to Bethpage and Bethany at the Mount of Olives. As with virtually all the characters in the Gospels, we never hear about Bartimaeus again. But with Mark's description of how he followed Jesus those 17 miles from Jericho to Jerusalem, I like to picture the son of Timaeus confessing the son of David, walking with him to the very city of David. And so Bartimaeus invites us to the same journey of following Jesus on the way and to the same confession, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. And speaking of Plato, for books this week, we review a book by Rebecca Goldstein. It's called Plato at the Googleplex, Why Philosophy Won't Go Away. New York Pantheon, 2014. This book is 480 pages. This book review is by physicist Brad Keister. Brad and his wife Katie worship at Washington Community Fellowship on Capitol Hill in Washington, D.C. Plato at the Googleplex is the latest book from Rebecca Goldstein. After receiving a Ph.D. in philosophy at Princeton, Goldstein turned to writing novels and essays, eventually winning a MacArthur Genius Fellowship. The reader gets pulled in with the opening title chapter. Plato is on book tour in the early 21st century and is managed by a self-assured young agent who takes it upon herself to guide him through a world that she considers to be completely out of his element. The first stop is the Googleplex, the famous dining hall at Google headquarters where some of the best and brightest exchange ideas on just about everything. Just before Plato is scheduled to give the invited lecture, in the dining hall, Plato encounters a variety of people, each quite confident in their own beliefs. Through his, method, through his method of questioning that leads to deep underlying principles, he exposes and often dismantles their belief systems. At the same time, the reader realizes that this is, in fact, a classic dialogue with modern characters inhabiting archetypal figures. The book alternates between reflective essays and further stops on Plato's book tour. These include the New York 92nd Street Y about child rearing, an advice columnist, a cable news personality, and a neuroscience laboratory.
The subtitle of Goldstein's book, Why Philosophy Won't Go Away, is a key focus, and she uses the stories and the essays to make that case. In particular, she devotes considerable space to philosophy haters, notably scientists who hold the view that a long time ago philosophy asked all the big questions and proposed answers, but science is gradually chipping away at them and will eventually make philosophy irrelevant. While Goldstein is a professed atheist, having left the orthodox Judaism of her upbringing, this position and some of its arguments are similar to those of Christians who face similar claims of irrelevancy. There's much to gain here in a book that recasts the great dialogues of Plato in a relevant modern context. Rebecca Goldstein, Plato at the Googleplex, a book review by physicist Brad Keister. For movies this week, I review a film called Race to Nowhere from 2010. This 85-minute documentary grew out of the personal experience of the filmmaker Vicki Abels. When her daughter reached middle school, she started having headaches, stomach aches, and sleeplessness. A doctor diagnosed her with a stress disorder, which is to say that school was making her physically sick. In my own daughter's school, five students committed suicide her senior year back in 2009. So, Abel's film is a cry from the heart about our educational system and the broader cultural undercurrents that make school such a negative experience for many children. Too much homework, too many tests, pressure to get into a great university, cheating, extracurricular activities, and so on. There are many actors and complex issues here. Family systems, kids, schools, teachers, administrators, school board, policy makers at the local, state, and federal levels, budget makers, the tutoring industry, the college rating games, and on and on. There are also some apparent contradictions that are not addressed in the film. If so many of our schools are so bad, why is emphasizing achievement wrong? With all the emphasis on competition and achievement, why do American schools compare poorly with other advanced countries? The film also makes little distinction between local situations and the entire nation. Still, this film is a great conversation starter about how we define and then help our children experience whatever it is called success in life. I watched this film on Netflix streaming. From 2010, the documentary film Race to Nowhere. And finally, for poetry this week, we posted a poem by the famous Alexander Pope. Alexander Pope lived from 1688 to 1744. It's called Ode on Solitude.
How happy he who, who free from care, the rage of courts and noise of towns, contented breathes his native air in his own grounds. Whose herds with milk, whose fields with bread, whose flocks supply him with attire, whose trees in summer yield him shade, and in winter fire. Blessed, who can unconcernedly find hours, days, and years slide swift away in health of body, peace of mind, quiet by day? Sound sleep by night, study and ease together mixed, sweet recreation, and innocence which most does please with meditation. Thus let me live unheard, unknown. Thus unlamented, let me die. Steal from the world and not a stone. Tell where I lie. Ode on Solitude by Alexander Pope Thank you for joining us at journeywithjesus.net for Sunday, October 25th, 2015. I'm Daniel B. Clendenin.